0: Welcome to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast with Ian and Johnny,
1: discussing our passions of sport, OCR, running, and fitness to help you perfect your craft. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast. Before we get started on the third part of our 5KM performance series featuring two time Olympian, park run world record holder, and CEO of the running channel, Andy Badley, we want to shout out our partners, the Red Dot Running Company. They are the go to store for all of your running, trail, and sports nutrition needs in Singapore. RDRC are passionate about sourcing the best brands worldwide. And we're proud to be associated with a company we love and are focused on helping athletes perfect their craft and unlock their athletic potential. Red Dot, keep up the awesomeness, listeners. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey there, and welcome to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast, where we delve into the minds of athletes, coaches, and industry experts to try to find out the secrets of their success. I'm Ian Deef, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Johnny Thieu. Johnny, how's it going, my man, and what do we have in store today?
0: Things are going great, and we have an incredible episode for you guys coming to you this week. So in our previous episode, we spoke to British international elite runner Nick Gulab, who ran a 13.27, breaking the previous British 5K record in Monaco. We then spoke with Tim Bailey, who went from international sprinter to a sub 14 minute 5K time. Tim was also completing his doctorate in psychology and gave us some insightful tips on how to channel positive mindset to unlock our athletic potential. We started this mini-series of episodes to help you, our listeners, to learn more about the specifics that goes into distance, the strategy, and the mindset to hopefully motivate all of you to get out there and crush your 5K personal bests. We chose the 5K distance because it's a race distance that is easily accessible to everyone and has risen in popularity due to minimal commitment time and especially with the growth of organized events such as local 5K races and the park run. So for this week who better to get on the podcast than the man who has run the fastest ever park run 5k time. This guest of ours has an incredible running background, including competing at two Olympic games over 1500 meters and making the finals at the 2008 Beijing Olympic games. Amazing stuff, but his
1: running achievements do not stop there in 2008. He won the famous three mile race in Oslo in three minutes, 49 seconds, and then claimed another impressive victory in 2009 over the same distance when he won one of the most prestigious events in the running calendar the fifth avenue mile he is the founder and ceo of the running channel which if you're a runner and you haven't viewed on youtube where have you been this is phenomenal phenomenal content their mission is to bring great videos to those who love to run no matter your ability or experience let's welcome to the show andy Badley. andy welcome
2: welcome thanks guys pleasure to be on
1: so, Andy, we've, we've heard quite a phenomenal resume there. What out of all of these athletic achievements are you most proud of personally?
2: Yeah, it feels like a long time ago now. It's nice to have them listed. It's, that's the only reason I agreed to do podcasts, <laughs> is I just get to glory in all of these things that I'd almost forgotten about. And it's an excuse to bring them up again. The three miles, the big one, that's the one that finished that year, 2008, ranked number one in the world to the mile. And I won the race that in my childhood. You know, I was too young to, to sort of see it live, but it was the thing that I had throughout my teens, I guess, people telling me about, which was co-cramor breaking world records at that event in Bislett in Oslo, the Bislet games in Oslo. That was really special because it was this thing that, that I knew existed and I never imagined winning. it. I was actually, I was third the year before and then to come back the following year against probably a stronger field and run as fast as I did and win. Like it was the ultimate achievement in my career, probably. And my coach was there. He very rarely traveled to European meets with me. And he happened to be there. I got to give him the flowers. Then he knew what to do with them. But I gave him the flowers, did a lap of honor, all that <laughs> stuff. That was, yeah, that was the magic. That's the one thing that I, that I really remember. Did you feel, even
1: though that was your, your, your best ever kind of memory, your best ever race, and you said like everything fell into place there, did you ever go back and analyse that and say, actually, there was still something I could have done better to, to have ran even quicker? Or was it just one of those races you finished and you were like, perfect, let's just celebrate that, and we're super happy with how that finished?
2: Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I know, at the time, no, I don't think I could have done anything much better. My pacing was really even, pacemaking was really bad, actually. So I was dead last and hanging off the back of the field for the first lap. Can't remember exactly, but they went something like fifty-two for the first lap. So I was pretty easy. Maybe it wasn't quite as quick as that, but I'm sure they ended up one fifty-one, one fifty-two at, at halfway. And and you know we we I'd hung towards the back and then gradually picked my way through and ran pretty even splits, roughly fifty-sevens every every quarter. So yeah, the, I wouldn't change that that particular race at all. I don't think. I think I might change having seen, particularly this year actually, and the pandemic. I wouldn't have thought that was the ideal breeding ground for high performance at a late stage in a season you know athletes have had to kind of keep training without any clear goals but then they've come out and, and people have been smashing pbs and times across the board watch that. Yeah, there might be an element of shoe technology involved in that certainly on the roads there is on the track there are modifications to spikes and, and new surfaces and stuff but I don't think it's just that I think the one thing I would have changed throughout my career was the pacemaking and also the, the competitive nature of the races what I've noticed I suppose anecdotally in the more recent races is that the pacing so much better. And when you get smaller fields, there's fewer people who have kept training to the end of the season um, and really good pacemaking. Like if I think about the, there's an incredible 3K race where there was an Irish guy who, who paced them perfectly for this 3K and, and several people broke 7.30, which is phenomenal um, in this 3K race. In part, I think because of how good the pacing was and how the fields were smaller than they often are. Throughout my career, I think, and, and plenty of other athletes around the same period, fields in the 1500 and 5k suffered for being so big and the pacing being so erratic that no one had a good chance and when i've watched some of the races this year people have kind of slotted into single file and, and run these incredible almost time trial races which some of them are really exciting to watch some of them less exciting as a race but really exciting as a spectacle because there's a time that they're going for and i think that if i could look back and say to to race organizers in the late 2000s Put fewer people in the races and get better paces in. Like, no one in the race wants you to have a four-second differential between the first and second lap. Like, that's yeah. killing. That's killing people's abilities to run fast. And let people compete against one another, which is what happens in smaller fields. It's hard because, for, as a spectacle, people want world records and they want these incredible times. And often there's one standout performer, and that standout performer will usually be so much better than the rest of the field that they can say to the organizers, "I don't want anyone who could beat me in this race. I want a pacemaker for me. Everyone else is." going to be 100 meters back. I don't care about that.
1: It's almost like an integral part of the race now, having having a pacemaker. And of course, if you're going for these records, which most people do now, it's it's kind of a big draw towards these events, almost as important as the shoe technology that other people that you've got in the race. It's it's quite interesting, not something we've really discussed. Um, so, Something we have discussed, though, in Tim's episode is, particularly with your favorite event, like the Mile, the 1500, and in the States, the 1600, there's almost... Three events, which are very similar, um, around the same distance. Out of those events, which is the one that you think should be the kind of marquee event for that
2: distance? I actually don't know the history as to why why the fifteen hundred became the thing and not the mile in terms of like the Olympics. My guess, best guess, would be that it's safer to start down the back straight. You know, I've seen a lot more fallers at the beginning of a mile because everyone's starting on a waterfall start and they're trying to yep. get into lane one before the bend so that there is an element to that you know you've got nine meters and then the bend broadly depending on the track and and on the 1500 meters you've got the whole back straight for the whole and again diamondly they would often have 20 plus guys in a race trying to get to lane one and that's why the pacing was so erratic because the pacemakers couldn't get into the lead without running a 13 second first 100 meters like it wasn't possible 12 seconds sometimes so that's i preferred racing the mile because of the magic of it the history of it yeah so it's amazing the difference in mindset actually like the It's only an extra 109 metres, but I I think that makes a big difference, four laps versus three and three quarters. Like the first three quarters of a lap almost doesn't feel like it counts in the 1500 and then it's three laps to go. So it's a a different psychological approach, a different mentality. But actually my PB, PR for your US audience, maybe in the 1500 is actually my split through 1500 at the, the mile in Oslo that day. I never ran quicker than that over 1500, but I obviously could have done because at that point, I was about to kick off the bend so I, you know my last 100 meters was pretty quick so had I kicked 100 meters earlier and then stopped at 1500 meters then then I might have gained a second or two so I always felt like I could have run a much quicker 1500 based on my mile time a lot of the time I was focused on racing didn't always work out like I didn't win the medals I wanted to win but I certainly was proud of a lot of races that I ran in and was competitive with really good people uh, and the British trials that I won the races on the European circuit that I won, like I felt like I won a, a fair degree of races. You would, you lose a lot more as a, as a runner. You know, there's 12, 20 plus guys in a race, so only one guy gets to win. But yeah, that was a, a long-winded answer to whether I prefer the mile or the 1500.
1: The mile is the one that ticks the box there. That's interesting. Um, you said the race in Oslo was kind of your peak Was there something leading into that race or something to do with your mindset that helped you produce that performance? What what would you attribute you you running your best race to? i
2: would had a really good couple of years. 2007 had been good. I won a big race in Sheffield, like the precursor to, I guess, the Diamond League back then. It wasn't quite on the Golden League circuit, but there was only six Golden League races. So I beat Legat in the hammering rain, ran 3.34, like a big PB, and was like, hey, I I can do this. And I started to believe the people around me who were telling me, you know, you're pretty good at this. And and uh, you know, they, they're saying to me, oh, you're training with guys who have run X, Y, and Z. There's no reason you couldn't run something like this or even better, but you don't believe it until you see it. You see it a little bit in training, but then as soon as you see it in one race, you're like, okay, I, I believe them. And throughout 2008, actually, we'd been talking about my chances at the Olympics that year. It was a bit of a joke that where so we planned out my season. And actually I hardly ran any 1500s at all in 2008. I ran a few miles, 3Ks, 800 and stuff. And I kept saying to like, my coach and, and to my agent at the time, like I need to run some 1500s. And they would, their reply was genuinely, you'll have two at the Olympics as, warm-up, <laughs> as warm-ups for the final. And like, it, it started as a joke. Well, maybe not to them. To me, it started as a joke. But hearing that every time, like, I need a 1500. Though. You don't. You've got two rounds at the Olympics. Then you'll be ready for the final um, was the mentality. And at this point, I'd never been to an Olympics even. So i was still in my mind thinking about qualifying and getting there. But the people around me were thinking about trying to win a medal in the final. That sort of slight you know, bravado playing up to me and essentially telling me what maybe what I needed to hear. But then I started to believe it and just could see none of my training was spectacular. Like if you were to pick one session, maybe actually I actually did. I do really remember one session that was really strong. But, but most of them were just like, these are really good sessions. And then when you look at six months or 12 months of training, you're like, oh, wow. Okay, I've got a shot here because I've really put it together consistency over
1: time a gradual build-up I'd love to talk about that one session because obviously that's stuck in your mind you know 12 years later what was the session that really did it for you
2: the irony I think is that I injured myself doing that session but and so I, I got onto the plane to go to Beijing to Macau where our holding camp was injured like I couldn't walk I, something to my Achilles and I spent the whole three weeks before the Olympics in the shape of my life but not able to run at all and um, went down to the the training track in macau and it was like a week out from the olympics and all of the other coaches you know everyone was doing their pre like their final big session big workout and i was just one of the coaches was like oh andy what what are you doing today and my coach was with me and he was like oh we're just gonna do bends and straights because i hadn't put spikes on for two weeks so three weeks wow so i literally jogged the bends and ran the straights and maybe like outside four minute mile pace and then we finished that and it didn't hurt as bad as I expected it to hurt and we were both like okay that's a victory and you can see all these other British coaches like oh shit this this, this isn't good. Taking notes
1: right we don't actually have to do any sessions three week taper.
2: I think they're more just thinking oh well there's like he's he's going to be hopeless at the Olympics so and then the the workout itself that I remember was a a workout I did a few times I did it again in in 2012 and it's a really good marker for me it's not rocket science as to why might work but it's, it's it was a 1k time trial I, I was with my i trained with a group of australian athletes at that point um really close friends and um people that i had been living with and training with for a year or so on and off like you know they they went home for their summer and then they'd be over in the uk in our, our summer we did 10 200s as a warm-up so that when you did the k you were ready to go energy system wise but also a little bit fatigued like just a, enough to to feel like that's what it feels like in a race and the 10, so it's 10, 200s in 30 seconds with 30 seconds recovery. So it doesn't sound like that much, but actually it's enough where you have five or six rear, five or six of them in, and all you're thinking about is the big rep, the big 1K rep. Yep. <laughs> and so you're not really thinking about that. You're like, I just want to get these done. And these are harder than I want them to be. And that's that's so true with all training that like when you have a particular goal in mind or when you're in a race, maybe you get one race where you're like, I feel awesome the whole time. But most races, even when you run really well, you're still thinking, I'm hurting earlier than I want to hurt here. And it's a, it's a psychological thing where you're like, well, I, yes, I'm hurting, but I'm not hurting as much as so I was hurting in training that day, and I still managed to bring it home. And that's, the, the, I guess, the self-talk, the motivation in the, within the, the race to be like, oh, that's the hardest bit about preparing for any distance race is you know it's going to hurt. You know, you, I know 100 metres people have got various phases to execute and stuff, and they're more yeah. under pressure from a time perspective. But the hard thing about a 1,500 or 5K is if you're going to run well, you're going to hurt. Uh, and people assume that because you've got faster or you're faster than they are, that it's easier for you. But it's not, I'm, I'm at my same proportion, of my red line as you are, if I'm getting the yeah. best out of myself.
1: Can you remember the time that you ran, Andy, for that 1K?
2: Yeah, I can. So the we ran, interestingly, it was sprung on me at the last minute that actually we weren't going to do a K, we were going to do an 1,100. And then we had a okay. train, so there was <laughs> like five or, five or six of us in the, in the training group. So not only had I just done the 200s, but then they were like, okay, we're doing an 1,100. So that we can start at the 1,500 metre start line and then finish at the finish line um we had a couple of guys in there to help pace us and i just remember going through six or seven hundred and being right on the guy who was pacing and kind of almost not i don't know whether i spoke to him because that would not really be my style and i was probably pretty much all out but like yeah we were pushing on then i passed him at like definitely seven or eight hundred and then was really pushing and myself and an aussie guy who at that point was a world silver medalist in the 5k craig mottram still holds the aussie record for 5k uh him and he and myself we were side by side the whole way almost to the finish line then and yeah i'm sure i went through i went through a k and two right around 218 so like nice. i'm sure sure it was that kind of time it was definitely sub 220 so um uh, which is 330 pace for 1500
1: sweet that's so, awesome yeah, man.
2: yeah no it, i'm thinking about it now it wouldn't have been sub 218 around about 218 to 220 that that region that's
0: impressive it's good to hear so I think we're going to rewind it back a bit, thinking about at what age did you realize that you might want to compete at the highest level possible in your passion in running? At the highest level, probably
2: not until like I was 22, so like 2004. I'd been a decent, like an okay junior, so an under 20. Um, I'd had some support from the governing body in terms of a little bit of funding, but I wasn't like spectacular. I'd never win a medal at our English schools, which is like a pretty big deal when you're 17, 18. I went to university as a good runner didn't train hard enough probably and then in my final year at university my fourth year because I did a master's I met up with my coach who now coached me throughout my career Andy Hobdell and he was setting training for me and the rest of the university guys because that's what I was asking him to do and it was only that year then that I went to an Olympic trials not thinking I could win it or anything like that but just like oh I'm I'm I've done a solid six months here of good training. And up to that point, I'd run the Olympic trials a few times, or the equivalent, like the national trials, as a 19, 20, 21-year-old. I was like last or seconds last in my heat every time. So this is the first time that I went thinking I might be able to make the final. And I made the final pretty comfortably. And then in the final, with 200 metres to go, I was maybe like 11th out of a field of 12. Uh, And I finished second um, with a really strong finish. But I, I hadn't given myself a chance, really, because... I probably didn't have quite the right mindset at that point. I felt like I was lucky to be in the final and just wasn't switched on enough to how to race properly, which I'm sure some people would say actually about my senior career as well, but (laughs) I was doing my best. Yeah, and then I came through this really strong finish, finished second in the Olympic trials, didn't have the qualifying time and also didn't have an agent. So plenty of people who finished behind me in that trials race. have agents and got into the better races so i actually traveled to a race with a bunch of those guys that i would beaten in the trial because they had a decent agent they were in the a race and i was in the b race at this european race Um, and i won the b race or second in the b race but it was too slight because we didn't have the same standard of competition to get pulled around Uh, i don't know whether i could have run the olympic time and gone to athens then but it was an eye-opener to one i could do it like this was a, a realistic career shot although i was still at that point considering a phd because I was doing my master's and it was Andy persuaded me to give it a year in London training with some of the guys he was coaching Uh, be surrounded by people like I guess I was at Cambridge from a running perspective was a big fish you know in a small pond in that like I didn't have people around me of the ability to push me Um, had amazing people I was running with but they had other focuses and we're going to move on to other things Uh, moving to London I was surrounded by people who were all international athletes at a junior and passing into senior level at that point and then i had my eyes open to actually like what was possible what types of training i could do at that point i didn't know what a threshold run was um i'd never double dayed i probably ran five or six days a week at the most uh, my longest run was probably like 70 minutes so all of the things that are required to be a decent distance runner i wasn't really doing so then yeah th- th- i could see that i had had room but i <laughs> thankfully with Andy we we didn't just go from like 25 miles a week to 80 miles a week took like a few years to build up and so it took me from 2004 on graduation to 2006 to to really like take a big step forward
0: so it seems like after that first experience of the trials and then and how it turned out it really like sparked a fire to see that there's more potential to it for you to reach the next level of the pedestal for yourself right yeah
2: i I suddenly was like this could be let's give it a year see if I can get better see if I could run times that might be like for me I was thinking probably oh I might get I might you know a shoe brand might send me some free stuff <laughs> I might get to run in like the big meet at Crystal Palace and all that stuff I wasn't thinking I could definitely go to the Olympics or world championships or any of that stuff I think it's important that you surround yourself with people who are i have been parts of different training groups and it's really noticeable when a, when a training group and an environment is like we're not just going. We're not just going there to compete. Like, what's the point? Like, we're going to. Go, we're going to going there to win. We're going there to be competitive, whatever it might be. And I think that mindset. Whilst you do have to be realistic about what you can and can't achieve, I don't think you find out what you can achieve without having the, a mindset that's closer to that, where you think you're constantly thinking about how to get better or you're not just making up the numbers and I'm not just trying to get free kit. <laughs> Andy, can,
1: can I just ask, was, was there like a cultural architect or someone within that group that was really pushing everyone to, to do their best other than just your coach? Was there someone in the group that was setting the standards for everybody else?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I was living, uh, when I moved to London for the first time, I was living at St. Mary's University and actually pretty illustrious group of people, one of whom was Mo Farah, so we were living in the same halls together, a group of GB International's Gemma Simpson ran multiple championships at 800 metres. Kate Reed, who went to the Olympics in 2008 for the 10K, maybe the 5K as well. And then a guy called Steve Vernon as well, who ran a lot of cross-country events, uh, but also now coaches Team New Balance Manchester. Really good friends with Steve. And I don't know, it was, it was a real environment of camaraderie, but also that kind of the expectation was that you, you were going to, to compete and to win and then that stepped up even more both through my coach who could see what I could do and was trying to get me to believe in myself and then when I did go and train with that group of Australian athletes with Craig Mottram being one of them and some other brilliant runners like Collis Birmingham they very much had that Ian you're a similar generation to me we grew up with being dominated by the Aussies in sport particularly in cricket and rugby and but they had they had that there was that perception of, of like you know, desire to win and, and wanting it more and like the plucky losers of the Brits and stuff like that all yep. of a sudden I didn't see myself like that I saw myself as part of this this group who together with my group back home which Mike Skinner your good friend Ian was, was one of as well yeah we had the attitude of a bit, a bit like I suppose that that old school Aussie attitude which was you don't do sport to make up the numbers you, you like you train your ass off because you're have an expectation of what you're going to get out of yourself and then when you go and do something you might not win but you're going to give it a bloody good go
1: yeah skinsey kind of said almost like the training in your group was kind of like prepared you for the races because you were racing and competing so hard within that group atmosphere that when it came to race day you were so prepared because of what you had done in training not just from the sets and the reps and the structure of the training but the fact that there were so many strong runners in your group both physically but With a strong mindset that when it came to race day, you you know you had the ultimate preparation from your training already. Yeah, I would
2: agree with that. Although I would make the distinction that I don't think we ever raced one another in training, but it was the confidence from being surrounded by people who are operating at that level and the way that we operated as a unit together. At times, it was that's what that's what I miss actually. I don't miss competing, but I miss that excellence in training, the, the attitude, the like genuine. You know support for one another because ultimately at some point we're going to end up competing in a race against each other but in training that that wasn't the mindset it was like you know someone's going to have a bad day or someone's going to be having a great day and you try and level out that by like the the people having a good day pulling up the others alongside them raising helping them raise their game to the level that they're at that day and yeah we, we ran perfectly paced workouts on the track road or cross country or whatever where we weren't metronomic we all knew what our part was to play we're in a perfect line we'd call it the train you know jumping on the train (laughs) and and kind of every lap one person would move out like like on the you know the the pursuit or the, the the team events in the cycling where everyone knows what lap they're doing they pull out and pull back in at the back and we almost could have done it without a watch sometimes Although actually Skinner, who you're, you're referencing, is the, had the worst pace judgment. <laughs> um, it didn't matter what we were supposed to be running. He ran 30 seconds for the first 200, no matter what. We were supposed to be running 34, 30 every time. At least we were banking some time. But um, yeah, he won't mind me saying that. That was an ongoing joke.
1: I was just going to say, it sounded like you could have almost brought this group out to Oslo with you, but not left Michael Skinner at home. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah um, he was fi- it was just always the first 200 we were we were fine after that so it was always like a running joke if he had the first lap that often we'd all just sit back and then he'd have like 20 or 30 meters of it on us over 200 and then we just gradually get him back
1: <laughs> we're gonna get skinsey back on the pod we'll, we'll let him dispute this argument uh, another time
2: but, uh... i will bring four or five more people who'll back me up on this it's uh, a <laughs> it's a cast iron cast iron fact
0: nice so I guess with all the achievements we've definitely heard from you so far, definitely a lot of amazing things. The one that I think that shines out as of late would be your 5K parkrun world record. I'm sure you've spoken this within length already. But for those that don't know, for our audience, you ran a 1348 out in Bushy Park. Now, this also happened the same week as you were running for the 2012 London Olympics. So would you tell us, how was the buildup like? And what was going through your mind as you were, this was not initially planned as you were going to, to this 5K and the London Olympics combined together?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a so, I mean, strange starting with the event, I suppose. The Park, Park Run and Bushy's the home of Parkrun and it has become this global movement. I mean, you know, people are desperate for to come back right now during the pandemic. It's I know I've seen all of the, the comms from Parkrun themselves, and following that pretty closely, I, they have an impossible situation, and there is loads of stuff to weigh up. But I, I love Parkrun, a massive advocate for them, everything that 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 it brings, and actually we'll come onto it maybe later. But that's the running channel. If you think about if anyone listening to this has ever been to a park run event at nine o'clock on a saturday morning or wherever you are in the world at what time it is that feeling of inclusivity of community and so on yeah you know, i guess that's what we're trying to emulate um with the running time and provide people with this home that they can have year round and week round where it's not just limited to nine o'clock on a saturday the bushy park run home park run it's also it's 5k but it's entirely off-road so it's gravel and grass it's maybe 2k but it was The course has changed now, but 2k of it was on grass and 3k of it was on gravel. So perhaps not the quickest, but it is dead flat and it was a lovely day. And yet it was four or five days after I got knocked out of the semifinals at London Olympics 1500. Um, I've been pretty down beating myself up about it. I was one place off being into the final. There's certainly lots of speculation then and since about how clean the London Games was as a whole. And, you know, to be one place off being in a second consecutive Olympic final is pretty pretty galling if there was anything going on um, I'll never know for sure but I had that in my mind I had feeling like I'd underperformed a little bit similar to Beijing I got injured right before the Olympics and and was frantically kind of trying to sort of feel normal again and ultimately that's the same injury that ended up plaguing me for four or five years after and ending in retirement if you don't mind me asking what what was the injury we didn't know at the time but it turns out that I had it was hard to know the, the sequence of events, but it manifested as this strange kind of cramping in my calf, uh, but it wasn't really cramping. Um, and it just, it meant like, I felt like I was running on, you know, on a flat tire, I suppose, whilst there was no identifiable injury or specific pain. I just couldn't run. I couldn't push off on that leg properly. I mean, it ended up being, they found that whether this was the actual problem at the time, but like my hamstring tendon on the inside of my knee had completely split down the middle along its entire length. Wow. Um, uh so yeah that's pretty brutal and they didn't find that until they went in for like fairly speculative surgery because we were like i just couldn't get right for four years I and mean, that was, surgery's the only thing left and i was in fair bit pain by that point i guess because i've been trying to run on it for four years they repaired all sorts of stuff in there mm-hmm. um, then my coach gave me a couple of days to wallow in self-pity and then told me to snap out of it and said hey let's go do parkrun we love parkrun we'd always done bushy parkrun as part of my training because it was where we trained and lived at the time um in southwest london we used to use it as part of my winter training more than summer if i'm honest we would do one lap it's one of the few park runs which is one lap we would do one 5k effort hard as a as a, essentially a race as a training group with andy on the bike and then we would do it again we'd like take three four minutes five minutes recovery everyone would regroup and then we would do it again as a tempo run so like do the first effort in like just outside 14 14 minutes 14 20 and then the second effort in like 16 something probably so that was that was a staple for us. And I felt like at home there that the particular stretch that, that is part of the loop of the 5K was we did a lot of K reps and, and intervals and mile reps and all sorts of stuff on there. And I love Bushy Park. That's one thing I miss about being out of London now. So we went down and did that. And we we, we went with the intention of trying to break this the record, um, sort of a notional record, really. I'm not sure. Like, I'm happy, I suppose, to be called the Park World Record Holder. But it, I don't know whether that's a real thing. Well, like, I wasn't drug tested afterwards for one. So, you know, can I claim it?
1: <laughs> it's a very real thing Andy because I think parkrun is so global obviously the Olympics is as well and, and you know you were just you know one place away from missing out an Olympic final but I think the everyday person can relate to parkrun where the everyday person can relate to watching the Olympics but not necessarily competing in there they want to know who's ran the fastest ever parkrun well it's you
2: yeah relatability that's the key right if I try and have a conversation if I'm introduced to a group of school kids or uh, chatting to a room of people or whatever it might be the Olympics unless you're pretty involved in the hardcore athletics club community it's not this this like it's this thing you do watch on tv and you appreciate how fast everybody is but you don't imagine going there and you can't think what it feels like immediately when I talk about park one people want to have a half hour conversation about how they can improve how can they break 25 minutes they feel like they're out of breath the whole way like how could they get faster um, oh it's easy for you they'll say because you're fast so you're not trying like it's not as hard for you we talked about that earlier that the the perception of elite runners being finding running easier is an interesting one but that that was I guess the mindset that I went into to that with and and, I got a really lovely reception on the line at Bushy that day is over a thousand people there I think that day because it was a beautiful summer's day a big cheer when they announced that I was there because people had seen me on the tv like four or five days earlier at the at the track and at the big stadium in, in London and then I hung around for ages afterwards because there was loads of people to, to chat to and it, I don't know the park run community is amazing and people were so lovely it was just really nice to chat to them.
1: That must have been a brilliant kind of obviously making the Olympic final would have been great but what a great second opportunity almost right just going to your local park run being with the, the running community who have been cheering for you on tv and wanting you to do so well and then going out there and, and running the fastest of a park run time. I know it's not an Olympic final but (laughs) that's pretty awesome still and probably you know I'm sure some of those conversations you had with people that day stuck with them forever you know
2: yeah I hope so I hope it has some kind of impact I have had lovely messages since then and, and actually I've got a really grainy bit of footage of me shot on someone's phone back in 2000. 12 actually phone cameras weren't brilliant yeah kind of grainy grainy footage of me crossing the line and the, like the, the volunteers and the finish funnel jumping up and down excited because they knew what the time was that's that's amazing at the time it did definitely didn't compensate and still doesn't really compensate from an achievement perspective versus olympic finals because that was what i was training for but it's the best thing that i ever did in terms of like looking back and then i had this amazing day it really lifted me out of this funk post-olympics it's everything that the running community should be about it's all of the stuff i loved about running not my achievement actually but the being surrounded by those people who are passionate about running that's what the running channel is about to me as well and then it just reminding me i suppose what's what's important and looking back more so perhaps at the time i remember actually going to so if you you know i had the rest of the season to race after that so i went to various different races and one of the first ones i did after that there was an agent or another coach or whatever on the circuit just came up to me and was like what the hell are you doing? Why would you do a park run? It's a <laughs> like he, he, essentially, in in his mind, he, I'd wasted this like the shape I was in, in yeah. doing the park run because I could have gone to. I was like, well, there's no other races. It's the Olympics was still happening, and yeah, and it was this weird. Like I suppose from the in the elite circuit, it made no sense, but that it didn't didn't really didn't really bother me. I I loved every second of it
0: each their own right like whatever you find most motivating and and fulfilling at the end of it is the more important race for yourself
2: yeah and I, and I do look back on that and I look back on the dream mile that I mentioned but also later after I had all those injury problems I then came back in 2016 to try and come back for the, the next Olympics and didn't ultimately make it but one of the final races that I did I ran a, a 359.4 exactly the same time as Bannister at the you know Roger Bannister's track, Iffley Road in Oxford at you know a relatively nice. low key BMC race, a few hundred people watching. But that ranks right up there with all those those three park run, the Iffley Road mile, and then, you know, it was ten seconds, just over ten seconds slower than my best, which I ran in Oslo, you know, eight years earlier. But it was at, what I'd been through to get to that point was way more difficult. Um and it was probably one of the few things that that allowed me to have closure on, on, from a career perspective at the end of that year when I kind of picked up another injury and just think, oh, I've got children now and I can't be as selfish as I want to be. I'm okay with stopping that day, <laughs> those, those days that I remember really fondly. That's one of them and that's one I'm most proud of. My coach was there, his kids were there. It was 35 degrees or something in Oxford, which is unbelievable. I didn't feel brilliant in the race, but yeah, I was so elated afterwards. So Andy, you've you've talked
1: about the running channel. We mentioned it in the introduction. How did this come about? And were there any lessons that you learned from your, your running career that transitioned and helped you set up the business?
2: One of the lessons is probably you have to be ready to take an opportunity when it presents itself. So from a racing perspective, I raced best. My coach would often say to me, you've got good racing instincts, stop overthinking everything, Just just react. And like you, you prepare in training to be able to react, so you need to be fit enough. My problem when I first started running was I wasn't fit enough. I had, a, I had speed, so I could run 23 seconds or whatever for 200, but I was miles back at 200 metres to go, so I could never get to the, to the front when I needed to. So I needed to get fitter so that at the bell, at 200 metres to go, I was actually in contention. Um, and then allow breaks that happen and people that get in the way and gaps that appear to just react and kind of, I guess, you make your own luck to an extent. And the way the Running Channel came about is, is pretty similar in that whole series of fortuitous decisions led me to a role that I was working in Fusion Media, which was a, which is a PR, social media communications agency, working in sports and active travel, and, and pas- they're all passionate about getting people active. I fell into that role by trying to set up my own business when I retired, kind of ended up working at Fusion, and, and then through Fusion, Adam Tranter, who it's his company he said to me oh like i've got this idea for the running channel what what do you think and he and he talked to me about it and I, I loved it and the idea essentially is we're making videos about running regularly every week they're completely free because they're on youtube and it was all of those things i mentioned to you about parkrun where that's the bit of running that i love i don't i don't like you know elite racing is pretty cutthroat there's a lot of politics there's a lot of nerves i don't miss that I miss the people, I miss the community, I miss the sense of improvement, the motivation, I miss motivating other people. I get asked a lot of questions about how should I do X, Y, and Z, and I don't always have the answers, but I feel like I have a relatively informed view, and I know plenty of people who can help me provide the answers. And so that's what The Running Channel is, and that's how it came about. Um, Adam kind of took a punt on me, so that's the first bit of luck in terms of giving me a role at Fusion, when broadly I had a gap in my CV where... I've been competing as an elite athlete and i tried to convince people that I had something to offer in a team environment because I've been part of a high performance team at the centre of that team, coordinating physios and and coaches and um, physiologists and psychologists and and nutritionists and all of that sort of of sitting at the centre of a high performance team. I felt like whilst it's it's a hard thing to write down on a CV, that those were tangible skills that I could take into the workplace. So Adam took a punt on me, which I'm internally grateful for. And then we had a really good working relationship. And still do and and he asked me because of my running background to jump in um, as co-founder of a running channel and actually i didn't have that involved much involvement to start with but then since the middle of 2019 or throughout 2019 i've had a much more hands-on role and now i head up the company as ceo although i feel a bit you know <laughs> if, you, if you if you found your own company <laughs> it's easy to be a ceo but uh but yeah to, to, to try and take that step from professional sport into to leading a business and creating a team who are hopefully motivated to do in the same way as we're trying to motivate people around the world to to feel our passion for running and to to help hopefully feel like we're providing down to earth but also expert advice um, to also inspire my team in the same way.
1: We can see a lot of parallels there. Certainly, with you know unlocking athletic potential, it's been a chance for us to connect with people in the past, talk about their athletic experiences, and, and at the end of sport, yeah, there's some good memories of winning races and, and achieving certain you know, performances, but actually it's the friendships and, and the community that's the most important thing and, and the best
0: actual thing that comes out of sports. So totally relate to that. That's awesome. Yeah, diving into some of your contexts, which one, I guess, if you're reviewing it, would you think you have the best reception or just interaction with? Like what part, what videos, what type of, type of content?
2: I think speaking to what we spoke about the content that does the best. We, we mentioned about relatability and, and the value of Parkrun. Stuff that is personality-led, that gives people an insight into the reality of the person behind the camera. So it's not polished. It's not particularly scripted. Anna, who's our, our head of content, you know, she heads up the channel in terms of presenting and so on. She has created some incredible vlog-style videos. And then we, through the success of those, we, we've tried to do that more so as a team. But by being vulnerable on camera, by simultaneously through some of our content, like how to's and so on, being a an, an expert, but a relatable expert to say like, hey, I've been through what you've been through. Here's what I've taken from it. And here's our our take from all of the experts that we've consulted to, to help you with this advice. But alongside that to go and run a, a marathon or whatever event it might be and to document that and to see the fragility there, the vulnerability of someone actually suffering, that you know, not just sugarcoating it in an Instagram sense of like how brilliant it is, but yep. saying like this is this is hard like this is uncomfortable the stuff that you want to achieve running a marathon running an ultra and completing your first half marathon or doing couch to 5k like you can't just do it tomorrow having never run before you need to put the work in and that's why it's rewarding and people seeing that and seeing their own journey in that is is i think the most powerful content that we've that we've made definitely
0: yeah, I think that relatability nice. and then also that self-persona perception of really seeing this, those eyes, would be either whether there's an athlete or just someone we want to hear about, that someone we can really learn from.
1: We were going to ask the question, as the current 5K parkrun record holder, what advice would you give anyone out there to unlock their athletic potential in the distance? But instead of saying that, I'm simply going to say to our listeners, go on YouTube, go to the Running Channel. You've got an amazing video on how to run a, a sub 20-minute 5K that video has such good advice. So it's important that people listen to this podcast, but take some action after this podcast. And you know, this channel, tell you, is is worth checking out. There's so much good content on there. And rather than Andy answering that question, we're just gonna say to our listeners, go to the channel and, and listen to his advice on there. Cause that video is absolutely top-notch. So we're gonna round off with a bit of quick fire. So, Andy, a few questions for you. First kind of initial response would be great. So I know you're still running a few park runs and uh, it, despite doing just a few runs a week, you're still you're still knocking out some 15-minute 5Ks. What's your current favourite 5KM road shoe?
2: I've been running in the New Balance Fuel Cell TC. Yeah, they're just releasing the, the RC Elite, but I haven't tried it yet. So I can't say that one. Very
1: yet. light shoe, I've tried that as well. Yeah, yeah, awesome choice there. Go to pre-race fuel.
2: Immediately pre-race or, you know, like a few hours or the night before or...
1: I'd say you're going to run a 5KM park run Bushy Park, 9am, what you having for breakfast?
2: I'm probably having a few hours before, we're talking probably three hours before, some um, cereal or muesli and then some uh, banana, like relatively simple.
1: Having some milk with the cereal as well, is it? I am, yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: So you've gone to Bushy Park, you finished your park run, you've just ran 1340 for a brand new park run world record, smashing your own record. What are you going to have for your, your post race meal?
2: uh two different questions post-race fuel if i'm like looking to recover for another race or post-race meal to treat myself you
1: treating yourself on this occasion but Um, recovery in there as well maybe
2: oh well i mean a burger is always my go-to i'm not sure there's much recovery in that but yeah if if i was trying to recover between rounds at the olympics or or anything like that then it'd be a bit more regimented i'd have a protein bar maybe even a protein shake depending on what i had with me probably a banana as well pretty immediately plenty of fluids i did ice baths all sort of stuff in between rounds as well
1: Nice. Just to let you know, Nick Gulab likes a good McDonald's (laughs) and his his order is unbelievable. It's an (laughs) order for about five people. What's your must-have training equipment other than trainers?
2: I mean, so one thing would I say, I think that if you're going to train seriously and you're you're trying to to run a PB, I think you need more than one pair of trainers. So that's, I know it is still shoes, but shoes for different types of training. Like I I couldn't run my speed work in the same thing that I wanted to run in 90 minutes on a Sunday. So that's not that obvious to everybody. Certainly through the running channel stuff people are like what are you doing training changing your shoes i'm like well i'll do my warm-up in my steady run shoes that i'd run my sunday run in but yeah. then i'll put my like flats i know flats have changed with the evolution of the vapor fly and so on but then i would put my lighter shoes on for the for the other workouts nice. the only other thing is i would say i'm not actually throughout my career i didn't use it very much a gps watch and i don't think people should be beholden to it and actually always run to it because learning to run to feel mm-hmm. so important but Having a good handle on heart rate for key sessions, I think, is really important. It's hard if you haven't got a coach and haven't got the lab facilities to, to get the accurate heart rate data. But actually running a proper threshold run is, is, is very difficult without having a good understanding of your heart rate. So you can get a good sense from just wearing a, a you know whatever watch it might be, Garmin or whatever, with wrist-based heart rate. Just getting a good sense of what your average runs are at certain paces is a good way of doing it but then as you start to experiment with different paces and threshold and so on i think knowing where you are in your zones is really important and a physiologist i work with once said to me you're better being um, five beats too low in terms of heart rate than one beat too high because that one beat too high takes you into lactate production and stops being an aer- stops being an aerobic training effect whereas five beats too low you're definitely still aerobic so know what you're trying to get from each workout basically what was your favorite training session Oh, interesting. So my least favourite, which you didn't ask me, is my was always the long run. I love being on the track. Bit of a masochist, I suppose. My favourite session, hardest session, which which I enjoyed afterwards because it because I knew what good indicator it was. I used to do a, a basically split fifteen hundred twice. So the idea here is that if you split up your race distance, then you're getting a decent indicator of what time you could run in a race. But if you only do it once. You've given yourself recoveries, so it's not a good indicator, so you need to be able to do it twice. Um, so it was 400, 800, 300 times two, with relatively short recoveries between the, the, in each set. So 400, then maybe 60 seconds recovery, 800, and then maybe, I, don't, I can't remember, 60 seconds or 90 seconds recovery, and then a 300. Um, and then a long recovery, like five to 10 minutes, and then the same again.
1: We are seeing so many parallels with our other guests in terms of these sessions. This is very interesting. What's your most inspirational book or film specifically related to inspiring you for your sporting performances?
2: I, my, I mean, one of my favourite books, probably the book I've read the most, and I, I don't know whether it's corny or not, is it's called The Power of One. It's a Bryce Courtney book set in South Africa. It's about a, a kid in a school environment learning to box. Just an incredibly powerful book. So easy to read. Really inspirational. Yeah, that would be my go-to.
1: Well, okay. Final question. Taking you back to 2012 here. You can choose one of these: a place at the 2012 Olympic final, or a park run world record at Bushy Park.
2: I, I yeah, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't. I, I wanted to be in the Olympic final. Like, there's not. That's not really a decision right now. Yeah, with the, if I you know if I run in the Olympic final and come last, then I might have thought. Uh, I wouldn't have had like, such a good conversation starter as I have with Parkrun now. But uh, that was everything in my life was about the Olympics and being in two consecutive Olympic finals. And, and I wanted a medal. Like that was how realistic that was in 2012 because of the injury, I don't know. But both 2008 and 2012, I thought I could win a medal and I didn't. But yeah, the, the I would I would trade it.
0: You would, okay. Gotcha, cool. Awesome conversation. Closing things off, is there any uh, sponsors or anything you want, anybody want to shout out to? Hey, no, just check out the running channel. Visit us on YouTube.
2: We're just about to launch a new website as well. So got some cool merch and stuff like that. Uh, We'd love support from the running community. And that's why we exist. That's why I'm passionate about it. So that's my shout out. Check out the running channel on YouTube or yeah. the running channel.com.
0: And aside from the running channel, where can people find
2: you? I'm relatively devoid of social media activity. So um, I tweet occasionally on at run I'm interested in, in Instagram and Facebook from a business perspective and, and love what we get to do with the community on there, but I'm not particularly active myself. So yeah, Twitter's the place to find me, I suppose.
1: Twitter and running channel. Andy, what can we say, mate? That was fantastic chatting to you. So many great takes for our listeners out there. And we really, really appreciate your time. And certainly we wish you all the best with the running channel. And we will continue checking that out on a weekly basis. And Just some amazing content. And lots of people hopefully will get on that after this
2: episode. Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you so much, Andy.
1: Another great episode with so many takeaways. Time to do a little debrief, Johnny.
0: Yeah, I think one of the takeaways for me was steady progression. We often hear that it's like the argument with nature versus nurture and from listening to Andy, the fact that he never won an English school medal and only realized he had able to compete at the highest level when he was 22 shows that if you find a passion, definitely keep training consistently and be patient because eventually you'll get there.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think so many people, they think if they're not good at something straight away, they move on to the next activity and obviously you found a passion for running. Um, became a world-class athlete but didn't have that realization until his last year of university and i think that's just a great message for everyone out there and then I guess one of the interesting things he mentioned was this whole deal of pacing you know right off the bat we asked him about his best accomplishment which he said his best race was the dream mile or one of them and then he said if he had better pacers back then he probably could have done better and then we heard about a former guest of ours michael skinner was going off always a little bit too hard in training (laughs) johnny guess who we've got online with us buddy
0: who do we have
1: look who's back (laughs) <laughs> He's back. Skinzy is with us. Skinzy, thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't heard Michael Skinner's episode, so Mike, 11 times at major championships representing Great Britain across Country, now sports agent for the likes of Mo Farah, is joining us from London. Mike, how are
3: you? I'm doing well, thank you guys. Yeah, it's been a while since we've caught up Been tracking what you guys have been doing. In the grand scheme of things, and with everything else going on in the world, I can't complain.
1: Good man. So, we definitely want to dive into this training environment you're in because you were a training partner of Andy's, and from what we're hearing, you set the standard for the first 200 meters every single session. Talk to us a little bit about that.
3: Uh, I wasn't sure it was every single session, having listened to some of what Andy had to say. Yeah, we had you know a group of four or five of us that were good training partners, but also great friends, and you know we effectively went to the track each week and that was kind of as much of our social thing as anything else you know we just really enjoyed being down there but then yeah specifically when it came to the training sessions the coach would sort of say you know whether we were doing 1200 reps k's 1600s 2k's that, right, Mike, you're taking lap one, Mark, lap two, Ben, lap three, Bad as you take the last lap. Kind of that would be say, a standard mile rep, for example. So sort of the thing was, is that certainly because of the group dynamic and we had, and because we all got on so well and the camaraderie that was between us, that I wanted to get it right. It, sort of, it was a sort of sense of pressure as in, if I get this wrong, I don't only mess it up for me, I actually mess it up for the other three guys as well. And obviously the level that we were performing at, particularly Andy, of what he was achieving, you know, you're like, this guy's an Olympic finalist and he's shooting to try and go do bigger and better things. If I, if I, I don't want to mess up his session. And so, I think there was that bit of me that, I don't know, say we were asked to go out in 66s you know, 68s maybe for 2Ks or 66s for the mile, I was like, I know I can do it, but I just want to make sure I get it right. And so I'd much rather be two... I'd, I'd feel better about being two seconds up than a second down. Yeah, I did certainly, I have to hold my hands up, say, on most of the time I'd probably go too quick early on just so that we could bank some time and be up and then I couldn't be blamed if we didn't hit the
1: correct spit on the rep. I like what I'm hearing, Skinzy, mate. It's better to go off too hard than too soft, mate. And um, if a race ever did start off at a crazy pace, everybody was prepared, right?
3: That's it. I I was just, you know, on occasion putting in some race tactics to be like, look, it's not always going to go as you want it, you know. And if people throw in some surprises,
1: you've got to be ready to cover it. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying anyway. That's awesome, man. I think I remember rightly in saying that you actually paced a world record attempt indoors at one point is that correct Uh,
3: not just an attempt here and it actually was the world record (laughs) and it still is yeah Kellenisa Vakili's world indoor 5,000 meter record in Birmingham yeah I paced the first mile
0: how was that experience not often do we really get to talk much about to the pacers normally that go out there and really leave it out there to set the pace for these guys attempting the record so we want to hear from your experience how was that and what was that feeling of that accomplishment for you also
3: Again, it actually links into what I've just said there, even about doing the reps within my own training squad. That there's definitely pressure, and uh, but kind of a different kind of pressure. I think your nerves is in. Say, I don't want to get this wrong because if you're running for yourself and you get it wrong, then it's only you that loses out in a way. But when you're pacing for somebody that's you know attempting a world record attempt and then the rest of the field, it's like if I get this wrong. I've like messed it up for about 13, 14 other people as well. So there's definitely a sense of pressure going into it from that uh, respect. And then also, yeah, you're trying to, it it perhaps changes how you actually have to run it. So, you know, I think, for example, in that world record attempt, I wanted to go through 1500 and about 352, 353. Now I knew I was capable of doing that and, you know, it's well outside my PB, but then when often you're racing you know you're perhaps yeah you're the quick lap the first lap will be quick then the second third laps they might particularly you know settle down a little bit and then generally you'll be finishing and obviously kicking hard over the final 300 250 type thing but when you're pacing that's not the exactly not the way to do it they want you to be running at a very consistent speed very even and so you know, you're trying to gauge that as in like right i need to run 352 but i need to run it where literally every 100 meters is exactly the same speed and then suddenly that comes a bit more pressure with it you start to think about it a bit more it's not as easy as it actually sounds or or, or seems but yeah on that day it it went well and uh, yeah I'm not saying that it was all down to me but um, Ken and Issa did end up breaking the record and I believe it still stands to this day so um, yeah that's that's quite another nice achievement to have
0: definitely a very interesting mindset for that
1: yeah for sure was there ever time in in training where somebody got something wrong and You know, you had a little bit of a debrief and, you know, obviously you're saying you were great friends. And that was kind of one of the reasons why the group worked so well, because you had that friendship within the group but were there ever times where you had to have a bit of a kind of serious conversation to say hey look you know we can't do this again or look someone's not quite hit the standard of what we would expect within this session did those conversations ever take place
3: yeah they did I've got no no shame in saying that I think again where we were lucky is that we all had that relationship where we felt we could have that conversation with each other you know but also again that we were pretty experienced and honest guys and it was more a case of you'd hold your hands up and be like sorry I got that one wrong you know or You know, apologise if you you went through either four seconds fast or four seconds slow. You know, you'd be like, "Sorry, that was on me. You know, messed that one up." You took it on the chin and um, had to move on to the next one. But of course, it did happen. But then there was also things about pretty consistent thing would be. You know, you get to the last couple of reps, and it would be like, "No heroes here." You know, we don't want to beat no great lads, as we would say. And it's not, you know, suddenly just then trying to kick in the last couple of reps, five or six seconds quicker. It was like. You've been given the splits that the coach wants you to hit you know that's what we're going to do don't just show off that you're feeling good today by sprinting off and going three four seconds quicker because that's not helping anyone
1: yeah interesting and talking about pacing you've just come off the back of last weekend's london marathon where one of your athletes mo farah did a fantastic job in in pacing a couple of guys to the qualifying standard for the Olympic Games in the marathon. Did you manage to chat to Mo about that experience? I think he did a little bit more than he was expecting to, right, in terms of distance?
3: Yeah, I did. I I was with Mo most of the weekend. And uh, yeah, exactly that. You're spot on. That A, he did enjoy it. And B, yeah, I think he took the guys all the way to about 20 miles, just over 30k, maybe 32k. And yeah, you know, again, I... It's the same thing. It's because he was invested in it. You know, he he genuinely wanted to try and help the guys get to their goal. And for many of them, that was achieving an Olympic qualifying time. And so, yeah, that's it. He even went above and beyond of what he was asked to do. And, you know, despite the conditions and the challenges there, I think he did a really good job. And exactly what I've talked about, you know, he was consistent on pace, giving them good feedback and good information. And that resulted in, yeah, two British guys getting the qualifying time. And then also beyond that, I think from the group that he was pacing, there were some other national records and other quali- and qualifying times for other countries as well.
0: That's amazing.
1: Just goes to show the importance of this pacing, how critical it is in terms of achieving times, in terms of people achieving personal bests nowadays, and having that social facilitation in play. Yeah. You were also there for that breaking two attempts with Kipchoge, where again some of your athletes were key for the pacing. But we saw Kipchoge this weekend produce one of his worst ever results in terms of I don't think he'd been beaten since 2013 how was that vibe around the race yeah like obviously I think particularly with
3: Issa pulling out just before the race as well that yeah Elliot was on the start line as the heavy heavy favourite you know when ultimately the result happened that did happen yeah obviously there was some surprise there but I think particularly you know because this weekend it was so much of an elite athlete bubble that Everybody there was just kind of like, well, that's, that's athletics, you know, and that's the, that's the sport, and these things happen. And I think, if anything, it just almost, upon reflection, should almost in a bizarre way add to Elliot's star quality because, as you say, he's been that consistent for seven years. Every time he stepped on the line, he's performed brilliantly. And when he suddenly doesn't do that, there's this huge surprise. Whereas we know that particularly in the marathon so many things can go wrong and if you're just 1% off or 2% off where you need to be you'll get found out and you know he obviously encountered a slight problem this weekend or Sunday and, and that's exactly what happened but yeah it's it doesn't diminish any of his achievements and if anything, you know, it just means I'm sure he'll he'll go away motivated to come back again. But yeah, my takeaway would be exactly that. The, and perhaps one of the reasons why we love the sport is because it's unpredictable.
0: But that, that exciting finish towards the end and things that we didn't expect. So I think that definitely lends to the...
3: That's it, yeah. And we, you know, we got a race rather than just a time trial.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
3: Three guys duking it out with 200 to run and then literally two guys being separated by a meter at the end. You know, that's over a marathon distance. That's fantastic to see.
1: Yeah, before we went online as well, Mike, I know you've you've had an exclusive on Andy's episode, listening to it before yes, all of our listeners out there. To that, yeah. No, 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 that's, that's all good. We, <laughs> we we wanted you to have a listen so you could enjoy this debrief with us. When we were talking offline, you mentioned about the fact that Andy's performance in terms of towards the end of his career, when the goal was to break four minutes again, even though he'd already broken 350, um, you found that was quite inspiring, I guess, right?
3: Oh, for sure. You know, again, obviously knowing Andy and being part on part of his journey the majority of the way and seeing what he had to overcome and what he went through to get back to that. Yeah, I easily say there was, again, amongst the whole group and all of us, there was delight for him. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, he considers that one of his greatest achievements despite everything that he did do. But I think that's, you know, again, something else that maybe we can all relate to and how at times you have to reassess your goals along the way and um, move the goalpost a little bit depending on what's going on for you and uh, so yeah despite the fact that he was a 349 miler when he broke four again after what he'd been through he he considered that one of his best achievements which I found interesting
1: awesome so listeners if you haven't listened to Michael Skinner's episode which is episode seven from crushing cross country to sports agent for Mofar and Usain Bolt it is an absolute must listen. It was one of our top five podcast downloads. Only um, top five? Well, Nick Gulavs is just overtaking you, buddy, so oh, I think on, you're down to six. Come on, listeners,
3: you've got to help me out here.
1: <laughs> so Mike's desperate to get back into that top five. So um, I want a in- I
3: want to be on the podium.
1: <laughs> We're going for top three. So when the episode was first released, straight out the gates, first 30 seconds, covered 200 meters and it's just slowed <laughs> down as the other episodes have come out. But um, yeah, it's a phenomenal episode. And Mike, we really appreciate you joining us yet again for this, uh, for this debrief on Andy's episode.
3: Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me back.
0: Thank you, Mike. And I'll catch you guys next time for the next episode of Unlocking Athletic Potential.
1: And that, my friends, is Unlocking Athletic Potential. We hope you've enjoyed this episode
0: and taken something away with you to help you perfect your craft.